0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to this episode of the Pre-PACES podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams and I want you to take a moment to imagine something for me. You're the medical reg who has received an emergency call to a patient who's fitting. The notes state the patient has a suspected non-epileptic attack disorder. But what you're observing looks like a tonic-clonic seizure. This is just one possible example of patients who may have a functional neurological disorder. And to help us demystify this condition... I've requested the help of Dr. Beth Mallon, consultant neurologist with a specialist interest in functional neurology, who helps us talk through how we make a positive diagnosis and best manage this tricky cohort of patients. And we pay tribute again to the generous bunch over on our Buy Me A Coffee page. Congratulations to Angeliki who passed paces while also looking after her small children thank you as well to Daryl and to Rui BG for their kind donations after passing and lastly a massive thanks to Lucy who recently passed after listening on her 45 minute commute. Thank you all for your generosity in supporting the podcast but for now let's get into this week's episode with Dr. Beth Malham. Welcome to the Pre-PACES podcast, and today we're going off the well-trodden path of our usual PACES content to cover a topic which I'm sure mystifies many doctors across the medical spectrum, and that is functional neurological disorder. And to discuss this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by consultant neurologist and subspecialist in functional neurological disorder, Dr. Beth Mallon from Southmead Hospital in Bristol. This is a real uh, mystery of a topic, and I'm, I'm sure many people who aren't functional neurological specialists will have encountered some of the terminology that we'll use through this podcast, but I'm hoping we're going to demystify some of the cloudy mists around this specific topic. And one thing that I hope we may be able to um, cover at some point, sometime a bit later in the podcast, is the specific situation which many medical registrars may find themselves in, which is attending as an emergency call or a double two double two call to a patient who appears to be uh, suffering a seizure. But it's not clear whether or not this is a true seizure or a functional neurological or non-epileptic attack disorder, which... I understand is part of the spectrum of functional neurological disorders. But either way, we're going to start off with some of the absolute basics. So without further ado, let's get talking about functional neurological disorder. So Beth, what do we actually mean when we talk about functional neurology disorder or FND?
1: Yeah, FND. So this is when people experience neurological symptoms, but there's no underlying damage or harm to the brain or nerves. So there's a problem with their function. So that's why we call it a functional neurological disorder.
0: And from the brief bit of research I did for the episode before starting this recording, it's is it right that it, it it's sort of an umbrella term for a variety of different presentations? And another thing, which you may be able to confirm or refute either way, is that it's it's almost an a a junction between or an interface between neurology and psychiatry. How how true is that of of FND?
1: Yeah. So well. So the first bit of that. So it is an umbrella term. So essentially, any neurological symptom can be functional in nature. 50% of FND presentations are functional movement disorders, um, 30% are non-epileptic attacks which we're moving to call functional seizures um, and then whatever the percentages that's left of that is a combination of those things and cognitive problems and uh, and other sensory symptoms perhaps. Um, so yeah it captures- lots of different things. And then in terms of it being the interface between neurology and psychiatry, that's probably a whole talk on its own. Um But yeah, traditionally, functional neurological disorder has been in the psychiatry camp during the whole of the last century. And it's only really since the turn of this century um, that we've started taking FND back under sort of neurology's wing. Um, and that's all to do with, what you think the trigger for people developing functional neurological symptoms is.
0: And uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to sort of discuss around that as well. You mentioned that there's no organic pathology to be found. So is is it right that pretty much the the majority of tests, the usual battery of neurological tests are, are normal?
1: Yes. So, the tests that we use in clinical practice should generally be normal. So, things like MRI scans, blood tests, EEGs, nerve conduction studies um, should be normal. Um, sometimes you'll see abnormalities that are typical for functional symptoms on, on the electrical studies in particular. But that's not to say that there's nothing going on in the brain and that this is all just a sort of thought process. There are studies that you can u- be using in research, so like functional MRI studies, which show that brain activity is different. And there's some interesting studies that show that brain activity for people who are experiencing functional tremor, for example, their functional MRI scans are different people who are experiencing parkinsonian tremor but also to people who are imagining that they have a tremor so putting on a tremor which is often an issue for people with functional symptoms is that they look voluntary they look sometimes like they're put on and that can create difficulties in interactions between clinicians and patients but actually those functional MRI studies show that the brain activity is different between somebody who's got a functional tremor and somebody who is putting on a tremor. And the difference between those two people is that the person who's putting on a tremor can turn it on and off. It's within their control, whereas a person with a functional tremor genuinely can't. And it's really nice to have that data from the functional MRI studies, which backs up the patient experience of these symptoms not being within their control.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned a couple of the more common presentations there of movement disorder, non-epileptic attacks. And one thing I found, again, from the brief bit of research I did, is that there's it, it's a whole spectrum of different functional symptoms. And I was quite surprised, actually, to see just how much can be affected by these conditions. So as well as those, I've found dystonias, gait disorders, facial spasms, uh, vision, speech, swallowing problems, dissociative symptoms – And, you know, that that surprised me that it can affect patients as much as that. One of the other things which I guess you might be able to help with as well is one of the things I've read was it's commonly associated with a number of other diagnoses. So things like fibromyalgia, insomnia, uh, irritable bowel, migraine, as well as psychiatric diagnoses such as anxiety and depression. And so one question I wanted to ask was sort of demystifying the terminology of this is this the same as what we would call psychosomatic symptoms or is that something different different entirely
1: yeah good question so historically again functional neurological disorder would have for, would have been the medically unexplained symptoms uh section of neurology so it's difficult to talk about fnd without referring to John Stone, Professor of Neurology up in Edinburgh, who's sort of done all the work and is the big sort of international figure. Um, and he did uh, a lot of the work that actually culminated in us calling them functional neurological symptoms. The problem with saying, for example, psychosomatic or psychogenic, so the non-epileptic attacks used to be psychogenic, non-epileptic attack, is that that is implying that there is a clear link between psychological factors and the symptoms that people are experiencing and the current evidence doesn't back that up any anymore and I can talk about that a bit more. So quite quickly we neurologists ditched the putting psychogenic in front of it. The uh, medically unexplained symptoms we didn't use, he didn't choose that term because it suggests that it's unexplained, you don't know what's going on. So he did a study to sort of look at acceptable terminology to patients and clinicians and functional neurological disorder was felt to be the best term because it implies that there's a problem with the function um there's a disorder of the function of the uh, nervous system so it's just a plain sort of says what it is kind of thing doesn't imply anything about etiology research varies and it depends on the symptoms that you've got. Psychological factors are more prominent if you're experiencing non-epileptic attacks, less common with functional movement disorders, but it's at least 50% of people do have psychological factors. But also, unfortunately, lots of people do experience difficult life events and not everybody experiences functional symptoms. So it's not a clear cause and effect. Um, And uh, there are certainly a significant cohort of people where there is no uh, clear psychological trigger. So it's an important thing to consider, can definitely be relevant for some people, and treating psychological factors can be helpful to the physical symptoms, uh, but it's not the whole story, and so that has been removed. And in the diagnostic manuals, which psychiatrists like to use and medics don't use so much, but the DSM-5 and the ICD-11, I think that's where we're up to in numbers, both have removed the need for psychopathology in making a diagnosis of FND in their latest iterations. So a, a clear sort of move away from, from having to, to pin things on that. I think it's fair to say it belongs to the medically unexplained family, which includes things like irritable bowel, atypical chest pain, chronic pelvic pain. Uh, uh, all of those kind of things, but all of those symptoms are moving forward with and improving our understanding. I don't think any of them are completely unexplained.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And one of the um, analogies that I came across was um, describing it almost using a, an analogy of a computer, and the computer being the hardware, being the equivalent of our our bodies and our ma- and our mind being the software, and saying that it it's not a hardware problem that we can detect within the 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 makeup of a computer it's it's not the keyboard it's not the mouse it's not the key i don't know the screen <laughs> it's it's a problem with the software and the processing of of our signals in our brain i guess and so, and so i guess my question is what understanding do we have about the pathophysiology of of fnd yeah
1: yeah so so just Briefly going back to a point that I think you made before is that there's such a variety of symptoms and FND is very individual. There are common features which allow us to make a diagnosis and there's a big push for identifying positive features of FNDs. It's not a diagnosis of exclusion, sort of end of the trail kind of diagnosis. There are positive features. Um, And my mind has gone blank. Completely forgotten what you said.
0: So, I mean... (laughs) That that leads us on really nicely. I mean, I asked about the understanding of the pathophysiology of FND, but but I guess the, in, or the <laughs> other area of interest, which is what I was going to come on to, which you, you feel free to go on and talk about, is historically FND has been a diagnosis of exclusion. And so mm. as training physicians, All our listeners and myself would probably love to know how we can improve our confidence in making a positive diagnosis of FND and what features of the history are more in keeping. So if you could answer those two in terms of what do we know about the pathophysiology of uh, FND? And then if we're taking a history or examining our patients, what features of a history might be more in keeping with fnd
1: Yeah, so my explanation varies depending on the kind of symptoms that people experience and, you know, their level of interest, how much detail they want and things. But there are a few. So, in terms of pathophysiology, how do these symptoms come about? So, I think the important thing to remember with functional symptoms is that we all experience functional symptoms, They are a normal part of the way that the brain works. So for example, when we experience optical illusions, uh, what we are seeing is not actually what reality is. and the problem is that your brain makes a lot of predictions about what you're going to experience in the world, and you experience what your brain predicts you're going to experience. So you see what you expect you're going to see with an optical illusion. You hear what you're going to expect to hear. There's a brilliant uh, thing called the McGurk effect, uh, where you can hear different sounds and depending on what you're reading, you'll you'll hear different things. Um, and you, you feel what you expect you're going to feel. So When you look at an optical illusion, sometimes you know what the trick is, you can work it out, and it disappears. Um, And then there are other optical illusions which you just can't overcome. So, and I can't say. Sometimes I'll show that sort of checkerboard illusion where you've got a column and it casts a shadow across the checkerboard. And even though I know that squares A and B are the same color, when you draw a line between them, that's obvious. But when the line's not there, I can't overcome that. Um, And so, and that is my brain just fixedly interpreting things in, in a particular way and so and that's a little bit like um, a functional situation so sometimes you can explain to the patient you're experiencing functional symptoms but even with an explanation sometimes an explanation can help things melt away but sometimes you just can't overcome it you need a little bit more brain training to to overcome that so experiencing functional symptoms is entirely normal you've got a complex brain makes mistakes now and then it would be weird if it didn't make mistakes and then there are particular situations where it's more likely to make mistakes so under stress so not necessarily psychological stress but so for example when I'm talking to you and my mind goes blank it's because I'm doing a lot more things I also want to sound like I know what I'm talking about so I'm over attending to to what I'm doing and that over attention just caused a bit of a brain freeze and I couldn't get back to what I needed to know that's a functional problem there's no problem with my brain I'm just doing too much and using putting it under too much pressure um, and it's failed so yeah so so I think that's sort of how I understand functional symptoms is it's just a normal natural part of the way that the brain works it's annoying and it can be unpleasant um but there's nothing unusual or peculiar about people who experience functional symptoms can happen to any of us usually when we're in particular situations we go out of that situation they melt away um but for some people they just get stuck um and i think also as doctors uh, you remember from being a medical student, you you read about sort of motor neuron disease and things and you panic that you've got motor neuron disease, see some flickering muscles, but you can chat to your colleagues the, the next day and you're immediately reassured by other people that it's okay, whereas a patient will get those symptoms, Google it, worry arrange to see their GP get referred to see a neurologist so it's four months down the line if they're lucky before they see a specialist who then goes well maybe we need to be careful we'll get some tests done and and then it's a few months later and and then if they're just simply told there's nothing wrong with you (laughs) it's all okay by then it's you know you're months into your brain experiencing and being in the habit of you experiencing those symptoms so it's difficult for them just to disappear with simple reassurance. And then the second part of your question about positive features. There is one, there there are lots of good papers and, and usually I reference John Stone a lot, but there's a good paper by Stoyan Popkarov, who's a German neurologist, and he wrote about FND and stroke. So it's quite specific for a functional presentation. But um, it's just a really nice straightforward uh, review article and it's got a good uh, summary of positive features of functional neurological disorders with their positive predictive values. So the most sort of classic functional symptom is Hoover's sign. Um, and this is something that you look at for functional weakness. It works best if they've just got a unilateral weakness. I find it best if somebody's sitting in a chair, you identify which is the weak leg, and you get them to put your hand on top of their leg and lift it up. Lift the knee up, and it's weak. Put your hand underneath their thigh, ask them to push their foot down into the floor, and it's weak, And so you can lift up the leg, so you can validate their experience. I can see that your leg's weak. And then you leave your hand under their weak leg and you put your other hand on their strong leg on the top of their knee and you ask them to lift up that knee. And you might say, so now now we'll look at your strong leg, lift up your, your, your strong leg. And you can feel then that in order to lift up a leg, you have to brace down on the other side. And so your hand that's left under their weak leg now cannot lift up that weak leg. And in the past, when FND was something that neurologists dismissed. that would be a trick uh, or and something that neurologists would keep to themselves. Caught you out. you're saying that your legs weak, but actually I can see that it's strong. But with John Stone's encouragement, we now use that as part of the diagnostic discussion with the patient. So we can say, look, I'll go through some of the examination with you. Can you? See, I can see that your leg is weak. And they'll go, yes, yes, that's a problem. Um, and do you see now that when you lift up your good leg, actually this leg becomes strong? And they'll be a bit sort of shocked. Or, or they might say, actually, yeah, no, that makes sense. Because sometimes my leg's weak and sometimes I can do stuff and it's a bit random and I don't get why I can run, but I can't walk or whatever. And so by the fact that the weak leg can be strong shows that the underlying machinery is okay. The brain, the cord, the nerves, the muscles are working okay because it can be strong. The problem is patient being able to move that leg in the way that they want to. So there's a problem with the function and the strength of that leg is out with their control.
0: Absolutely fascinating, Beth. And one of the things which I wanted to ask as well is that when we're taking a history from these patients and it may be a pattern of weakness, which doesn't fit a particular uh, myotomal pattern or um, there's, there's no characteristic pattern to the the nature of what they're describing is, is the variability of symptoms. Can that be an indicator of functional neurological disorder or are there any features in the history of someone describing, for example, uh, a weakness or a tremor or a gait disturbance, which would make you think more, Functional than uh, anything else, aside maybe from it not fitting. For example, a Parkinsonian tremor. Um, mm. For example, any and can you shed any light on that for us?
1: Yes. So there's a really not great term that we use in F and D. So inconsistency, internal inconsistency which sort of suggests that they are being inconsistent with their account or inconsistent with their, and sometimes I feel a bit uncomfortable using it because again, it applies It implies that they're doing things on purpose but yeah that internal inconsistency so with functional cognitive impairment you know they might go into great detail about all the things that they can't remember and therefore demonstrating that they've got a good memory for things that they feel that they can't remember so that that would be an internal inconsistency so I think what you had mentioned before the functional seizures or non-epileptic attacks there are definitely features I'm thinking more in the examination but again they would come out in in the history so an interesting thing to ask about I think with functional seizures is about whether they lose consciousness so obviously with an epileptic attack in general they do uh, if you're thinking if it if it looks outwardly like a generalized seizure If somebody with a functional seizure, if you say, do you lose consciousness, they might say yes, and you might move on and go, oh, it might be epilepsy. Um, But often um, people interpret that as, did you lose control? So um, if you ask them, could you hear, could you feel, if your eyes were open, could you see during this episode where you lost consciousness? They say yes, then that's not the kind of consciousness that you lose when you have an epileptic attack. They are still awake. Um, they might dissociate. So, another term, there's so many terms for functional seizures, but another term is dissociative seizures. I don't use that term so much because not everybody experiences dissociation. So, this is that spaced out feeling, feeling apart from the world, depersonalization, derealization, the world not feeling quite right around you, feeling detached from things. Um, people sometimes experience that, but sometimes they just are not in control of what's happening either their body's not moving at all or it's moving and they can't do anything but i think it's really interesting if you ask them can you see or hear during the episode and they say yes and i think it's really important to remember that when you're examining them because certainly when i was training you were taught to be horrible to people with functional seizures you were taught to try and jolt them out of it So lift up their hand and drop it over their face and somebody with an epileptic seizure will, you know, somebody with a functional seizure will move it away from their face on the, on the way down. Um, Do a sternal rub to try and, you know, get them to snap out of it, nail bed, pinch it. You're not even allowed to do this for um, assessing uh, TCS, are you? And putting a tuning fork, that was a favourite for some of the old tuning fork, just gently on the nasal hair. So it's really difficult to not, uh, to resist sort of rubbing your nose. So all horrible and actually the patients are awake, they are in a distressed state. So if you're annoyed or want them to stop, then you need to be kind to them. So actually sort of, you know, getting close to them, being reassuring is much more likely to settle the seizure uh, than being horrible to somebody. And another feature of functional seizures might be that there's a sort of whack-a-mole effect So, if you hold on to one limb that's shaking, it will often settle and the shaking might move to another limb. So, you wouldn't get that with an epileptic seizure, but you do get that with functional seizures. And it's a nice thing to do to just lay your hand on somebody and make reassuring sounds and talk about, you know, if, if, you know, maybe talk about them getting back in control and that this is, this is going to settle down, that we're in a safe place, things like that. Much more likely to settle. And if they do settle with your nice noises and your, uh, comforting touch, then um again, that's much more likely to be a non-epileptic attack and so it's diagnostically helpful.
0: This is absolutely brilliant for people like me acting as the medical reg on call, because I mean we we have moved into the next part of the question where I was going to talk mm. about NEAD, non-epileptic attack disorder. And I I posed the sort of problem at the start of the episode where you're on call. You get a 2222 to a patient with some of the comorbidities we mentioned earlier, maybe being mm. worked up with a suspicion for functional uh, neurological disorder or non-epileptic attacks, and, and you're asked to see this patient. And one of the problems that we find, certainly i found, is resisting the urge to give these people benzodiazepines, to give them loazepam, diazepam, et cetera. And so Mm. the signs you've just discussed, I really hope will help our listeners to identify these patients and actually probably prevent the administration of inappropriate uh, benzodiazepines. And so you've mentioned a couple of the things that I uh, had found during my brief bit of research. And I wonder if maybe you can determine if some of the other things I found are Consistent, not consistent. You can do some maybe myth busting for us with some mm-hmm. of these other things. So uh, we've mentioned a couple of things, responding to eye contact, exploring the room visually, that sort of signifies that they maybe haven't lost consciousness in the way that we might expect of an epileptic seizure. Eye closure with resistance to uh, opening them. Is that a, a positive sign for, in, in favor of FND rather than epilepsy? Yes.
1: Yeah. It is, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a. I don't know whether it's okay to quote papers, but there's, and, and again, it's the, um, uh, the first guy I mentioned, Stoyan Popcroft, the German neurologist, has just won the an essay prize in Brain, the sort of most prestigious neurology journal, and for an essay on FND, and it's a really nice, easy paper to read, uh, essay to read, you know, sit down with a cup of tea, it'll take you five minutes, kind of thing, and one point that he makes that I think is really interesting, is. That if you were to show a video or to take somebody who's not medically trained into a room with somebody having a, a non-epileptic attack they would immediately recognize that this person's in distress got their eyes tightly closed don't want to be in whatever they're experiencing um and and, and look to be very distressed whereas we the way that we're taught in medical school is we become a little bit more critical and we we lose that sort of personal contact and and that ability to empathise with what a patient might be experiencing. And so we go over and try and force their eyes open. And, you know, it is reasonable to try and open somebody's eyes just to sort of get an understanding there. But I think I think it is interesting that we're trained out of that natural empathy for, for people who are clearly distressed. Uh, so it's worth taking a step back. And I always would say that if somebody's having seizures at nighttime and you're not sure whether it's non epileptic or epileptic, particularly as an SHO, and I appreciate this more sort of registrar level, but it's a really stressful situation to be in. And really, it's the responsibility of the day team, the neurologists who are on in the day, to be making the distinction. for you so that you know what to do and to give you a clear description of what their epileptic seizures are like and what their non-epileptic seizures are like if they're experiencing both and so at night time you know a small amount of benzos uh, won't cause harm but obviously on a repeated basis it's not the right treatment for functional seizures at high levels um, it can be risky and there are people who ex- have experienced functional seizures very rarely you know there's always a story but there are people who have died who only have a diagnosis of functional seizures because they've been over sedated but you, you're not going to do that when you're um, on call at night time but really so so try and use you know the characteristic features to to make the diagnosis so that's a tight eyes tightly closed it's a back arching pelvic thrusting head moving from side to side that whack-a-mole kind of appearance appearance sometimes crying, although you can get that as well with some kinds of epileptic seizures um, and a sort of quick, relatively quick recovery afterwards uh, the duration epileptic seizures are just minutes long unless they're going in status but um, functional seizures can wax and wane over over sort of five ten minutes or even longer so that so you can look for those characteristics but I would again take the pressure off yourself at night time do whatever you and the patient need to do to get through the night uh, and just be kind to them and I think being kind uh, not necessarily with medications I think you you're more likely to be successful and, and then handover the neurologists need to come and they need to give clearer indication of how to distinguish those seizures for you.
0: This is so so helpful and and you've described a lot of the things which I found as signs which would be more in keeping with FND, the pelvic thrusting, side-to-side head movements. Another thing I found was that the breathing is typically more a regular sort of hyperventilation pattern rather than um, stir to a sort of low pitched breathing noises but again I think that might be quite variable and you probably may find that in some uh, forms of FND depending on just how the patient is lying rather than anything else. Um,
1: so I think as I said before functional symptoms are very individual so that there's, there's quite a bit of variability and not wanting to sort of make people feel unconfident again about diagnosing functional seizures but frontal lobe seizures can look very functional and can really catch neurologists out as well so you can get funny sort of semi-purposeful movements you can get funny behaviors a lot of frontal lobe disorders can be ms plaques can be frontal temporal dementias and things can look very behavioral and can be mistaken for fnd so it's always important that an actual di- the diagnosis is confirmed by a neurologist and that they do rule out those sort of weird and wonderful things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this brings me back to one patient who I was was involved with the management of on, a, on an elderly care ward who had quite a long uh, period of just frankly abnormal behaviour, completely out of character. And one of the diagnoses which came up was frontal non-convulsive status from which the patient was medicated and was mortified at <laughs> their behaviour, having been told about it. So,
1: yeah. I,
0: I, but I get it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult balance between trying to empower our audience to, yes. uh, get more confident, but also uh, not then under treating patients who may have true epilepsy. So, I guess the the balance would be is that if there is an established diagnosis, then we need not unnecessarily treat them with benzodiazepines but I guess if there's any flicker of doubt in our listeners minds as to whether or not to medicate them or if there's if there's doubt over the diagnosis of FND seizures or epilepsy then the safest thing would be to to treat as a seizure if if it's if it's ongoing beyond five minutes and not self-limiting
1: absolutely yes so there are a few situations where you can remember that the the brain that is experiencing functional symptoms is otherwise okay. So another scenario where time is of the essence is a stroke presentation. So up to 10% of acute stroke presentations can be functional and sometimes that can be tricky and you're not sure whether to thrombolyse and to make an FND diagnosis you often need quite a bit more time you need a bit more of a collateral history you need to observe the the patient a little bit for a little bit longer I think so long as there are no other contraindications and the doubt is there enough you're really sort of 50 50 not sure which way it is to go then thrombolyzing a healthy brain is okay.
0: Wow, fascinating! And I guess the last couple of things I was going to ask about is other signs, particularly on examination in epilepsy. I've always been taught that you know you'd expect a positive uh, Babinski reflex, for example. And can that be a differentiating sign in a in an FND seizure or an, an, or an NEAD attack?
1: So it's not necessarily one that I would go straight to. I try just to be reassuring. Is, is my sort of first response i think that is usually the most powerful thing because because then you're treating the problem which is somebody who's distressed they not might not recall being distressed that's a whole other aspect as the, the the relationship of functional symptoms and stress so they they might not recall that but in that state they're often distressed so so my first line would be to if I heavily suspected that somebody was having a non-epileptic attack would be just to talk to them and try to sound reassuring um might maybe look at pupils but that can be difficult when somebody's thrashing about (laughs) um maybe look you know for eye movements they can get that sort of the eyes getting side to side which you wouldn't in the sort of tick tock uh, which you get with an epileptic seizure rather than a functional seizure
0: yeah really interesting and as we spoke about before with regard to sort of investigations you'd expect the EEG in these patients to be normal
1: yeah. Yeah. It can be tricky because there's a lot of, it can be a lot of artifacts, but yeah, it's the, that's the gold standard of, well, a video EEG to capture an event so that you can see what's happening and you can see what's happening uh, to the brain at the time.
0: Yeah. And just one other element of, you know, what we would call objective evidence of seizure activity. Uh, what would we uh, do about a, a lactate? Would yeah. we expect to see? Because often in these situations, the first thing is, right, get a, get a gas, get a gas. Someone gets a gas, the The attack is still ongoing and then, you know, whoever it is runs back with the gas and says, you know, they've got a high lactate. Can we use that as an indicator that something is epilepsy or NEAD?
1: Um, I'm really sorry I don't know the actual evidence off the top of my head Uh, but I do know that it's not 100% reliable and so it's not something that I would use as a primary differentiating factor I might add it to my evidence but I'm going to look like a really stupid doctor here but um, a a lactate going up is just a of activity isn't it like you're just moving lots of muscles at the same time so you do that with a non-epileptic attack I think I think those kind of features difficult to be 100% sure about them if the lactate's entirely normal maybe but then again I haven't seen enough people having epileptic seizures to to feel confident about that there was um, a presentation on the people are looking for biomarkers positive biomarkers for functional seizures and there are none basically nothing reliable yet so clinical functional neurology is very much sort of old school neurology based on history and examination, the art of the consultation and less dependence on investigations. That said, it's okay to investigate people with functional symptoms. People often think, oh, I shouldn't investigate somebody with functional symptoms because I'm feeding their health anxiety or whatever I think the underlying problem is it's okay to investigate people because one, it stresses you out, not investigating uh, because you're scared that you might be missing something actually. Um, And then that makes you feel um, stressed out with the patients because you feel like you're carrying more clinical risk and they're making you feel uncomfortable and you don't tend to like people so much when they make you feel uncomfortable. So it's It's okay to investigate, but just don't over-investigate. So just the necessary investigations to rule out what could be a mimic of their functional symptoms. And as I said, earlier on so traditionally they were thought only to relate to psychological factors actually people can experience functional symptoms in the context of physical illness so that might be a systemic illness that sort of makes your brain puts your brain under stress more likely to interpret things but also if you've got a little bit of something so a TIA or a very minor stroke, it might look overwhelmingly like a functional neurology picture, but actually the trigger for it is a small neurological event. Uh, it could be a an MS plaque, it could be anything. So investigations are okay to rule out physical mimics of the symptoms that you're observing and also to rule out a physical trigger for the symptoms that you're observing. So particularly with new symptoms, you know, just investigate appropriately. Explain to the patient that they've got the symptoms. You think it's likely to be functional neurological disorder. Um, this is a problem with the way that your brain's sort of processing things at the moment, uh, creating these symptoms that are entirely real, and we we'll do some investigations to make sure that we're not missing anything. If you're correct with the diagnosis of functional neurological disorder, I would expect those tests to be okay and uh, for no problems, although obviously we can always get incidental findings. And then when the test results come back and they're negative or normal, that supports your diagnosis. And so you look like a great doctor, did the tests, and they support your diagnosis. And if the tests come back and, oh, they've had a small stroke, well, you're great because you kept an open mind and uh, you've identified another sort of part of the problems that they're experiencing. So, whereas if you say, Oh, I'm not sure what's going on. You've got unusual symptoms and uh, this is makes the patient feel a bit of a mystery and it makes them feel quite anxious. And then the test will come back as normal and you say, Oh, it's great news. You know, I was worried that you might have Parkinson's, I was worried that you might be having seizures or you might have MS. So actually the tests are all normal. Uh, it's okay, everything's fine. Um, it sounds a little bit more like, Are you sure there isn't another you know, you thought that there was something wrong with me, are you sure? We don't need to do another test, so it's okay to investigate. And just the way that you phrase it uh, with the patients can can make a difference to how they receive those results.
0: Yeah, really interesting. And if we move away from the seizure and epilepsy side of things, and and back into the spectrum of FND uh, symptoms, when you are suspecting. Uh, a possible diagnosis when you've maybe confirmed the diagnosis or as you say investigated appropriately and nothing has uh, no investigations have yielded is any alternative explanation what can be the the difficulties that you encounter with explaining the diagnosis to the patient you know are they um, how often are they resistant to the diagnosis versus maybe being more accepting and um, you know working to manage their symptoms
1: Yes. So again, goes back to the functional symptoms being individual. Everybody's sort of wants a different explanation, uh, might need a different explanation. So sometimes the hardware software analogy can be helpful. I'm not that hot on computers. And sometimes I sort of lose confidence with where I'm going when I talk about it. And it takes a bit of practice. So when I'm sitting in my functional neurology clinic, I can, uh, it's completely fine, I do it a lot. When I'm out doing my, I do on calls in stroke, you know, I fluff it just like other people do. So, um, and sometimes you sort of start out okay, and then, and then it all goes wrong. It's hard when you do a stroke on call, because you've got an audience of other other colleagues around you. And I've, I've had patients go, so you're saying it's all in my head. And no, <laughs> and I'm supposed to be the specialist. But it can come across, because you're saying your brain's okay, it's a bit of a leap. We find it difficult. It's a bit of a leap then to sort of understand that your brain's just sort of doing something a bit weird and you're and you're getting those symptoms so it's really hard to give you a sort of step by step this is how you explain it and this is going to work every time and so it's just practice really is 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 the key to it and and don't worry too much if you if you mess it up a bit just say it's really hard to explain um and uh there are props neurosymptoms.org and you've probably heard about um, is John stone's website with everything you could possibly want to know about neuro- about functional neurological disorder it's massive some in some ways it's a bit unwieldy but it's designed to help you go through a consultation so there's an introduction page and then symptoms and you can click on symptoms and there's a drop down of all the different symptoms people can experience and patient information leaflets on cognition on gait on weakness on tremors on, Non-epileptic attacks on functional cognitive disorder, and then I think it's treat. No, and then it's me- no causes. Causes why might it have happened, and then treatments, and then links to other people's stories. So you can sort of click through that. And actually, so lots of people will say, "Oh, I was told I had FND. I was given this website, and that was it." Um, and Johnstone has looked at that scenario, and the vast majority of people don't look at a website if you don't do anything other than give them the name of it. So actually going through, so I'll get people, if I see them in the acute setting, I'll get, I'll get them to get their phone out and find neurosymptoms um, on their phone and just click through it a little bit and a bit, you can save bits on, on the website so that then they know, actually I'll go back to that and do a little bit more reading on it. Resistance to the diagnosis usually comes about when people focus on the stress aspect and so, as we said, you know, functional symptoms are more likely to occur when the brain's under pressure and that could be physical or emotional stress. And I think we have to be careful about interpreting other people's lives. So a bit, a little bit of a check your privilege kind of thing that we might look at somebody's life and go, that looks chaotic and stressful and say to somebody, well, your life is stressful. And they might go, actually, things are pretty good at the moment. Uh, they might have been stressful in the past or whatever, but I, this might look chaotic to you. But this is good for me so so they might not take too kindly to you saying telling them that their symptoms are due to stress and vast majority of people who I meet in clinic who say the doctor said it was due to stress and if I say did you feel stressed they'll say no and it made no sense so you can say these symptoms more common when people feel under stress do you think that that's might be relevant to you at the moment and if they do great you can explore that with them but if they don't you're on a hiding to nothing and you're just going to annoy them it's a little bit like you know when you go to work and people say you look tired (laughs) nobody says yay thanks (laughs) it just feels a bit personal that somebody's making a judgment about you so so yeah I think just be really careful about um focusing too much on on the the stress aspect it's not not always there to us deep down we might think i'm sure that that's it but as i said if it's not something that feels relevant to them then they're going to really struggle to engage with it and sometimes you need to build up a build up a bit more of a rapport or a relationship and and then you can start to explore these kinds of things
0: yeah really interesting beth and my last real point on on this is is once you've established a diagnosis of fnd what are the mainstays of actually managing these patients when they come to see you in your functional neurology clinic? What are, what are the usual pathways for these patients to help uh, improve their symptoms if, if that's possible?
1: So so diagnosis is key. <laughs> so uh, lots of people don't get a diagnosis, just get a diagnosis of it's not X, Y, Z. So give it, giving them a, a clear di- uh, diagnosis, signposting to neurosymptoms is helpful patient support groups, FD Hope, FD Friends. And then if the symptoms are ongoing, then referral to a functional neurology clinic. But the mainstays of treatment, so not everybody needs a functional neurology clinic, is physical therapy and talking therapy. So physical therapy will relate to whatever their symptoms are. So that might be neurophysiotherapy for most of the functional movement disorders. Uh, it might be speech and language therapy if they've got a speech disorder. Um, might be occupational therapy if they've got cognitive problems. And then the other strand is talking therapy. As I said, there's a society, not the sort of mental health stigma is quite strong. Uh, so it can be amongst doctors making assumptions about causation, but also patients aren't mad keen to get sort of diagnoses that suggest that their mental health isn't great. So when I talk about talking therapy, I'll sort of explain that. You know, it's not needing to see a psychiatrist. Um, It's not, we don't send people for counselling. The evidence base is primarily in cognitive behavioural therapy counselling is much more looking backwards exploring previous experiences trying to make sense of them where you are now whereas cognitive behavioural therapy is much more forward looking about setting goals developing strategies developing ways of managing your making sense of your symptoms and developing ways of managing them and depending on the person I might further try to encourage them to consider talking therapy with cognitive behavioural therapy by talking about it as a form of coaching. So if you think of, you know, the football people who've been doing their international tournament recently, what do you call it? The World World Cup. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They can all do penalties till the cows come home when they're in training. They know how to do penalties not a problem but stick them on a pitch with 60 million people watching potentially a world cup at the end of it and they miss left right and center Um, and that's the the mental pressure and so as well as their physical training sports people get mental training coaching how are you what are you going to do when you're in that high stress situation how are you going to overcome that brain freeze that I demonstrated before what's your strategy going to be when your mind goes blank when you can't remember how to put one foot in front of the other so that makes sense to a lot of people that that you know and footballers are normal people ish you know there's nothing inadequate about them at all and they they have that kind of coaching those are the two strategies that I talk to people about but as I said before if somebody's not keen sometimes I'll say you kind of might you be interested in talking therapy or is it just something that you you just don't think is for you and if they don't then that's fine, Um, you know, might come back to it later. And actually, if you get physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy for functional neurological disorder, it involves an element of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, So that kind of brain training, strategy making uh, will be included. Patient-centered, I think as well, functional neurological disorder management. So you're meeting the patient where it's appropriate and then maybe bringing them forward to somewhere else that they might
0: not have considered going wow that's so interesting beth and i'm afraid it probably is quite too soon to uh, talk about harry kane at the world cup but <laughs> he could be a candidate for your clinic maybe to help him <laughs> score the high pressure penalties yeah we'll leave, we'll leave it there on a football note and i guess one last thing is as you've mentioned there's there's no evidence for any medications to be used in functional neurology there's no medical therapy we can use
1: no and i uh Often try and strip back the medications. So uh, people on loads of painkillers say pain is an interesting thing, um, and uh, we do, we don't treat pain very well. Pain it is not a is not characterised as a primary functional neurological disorder, um, but uh, it's often there as well. Um, but taking gabapentin, all of those kind of things, makes you feel groggy, makes you feel knocked off cognitively. So often. People on bucket loads of painkillers still experience pain. I've never met anybody who's taking laser morphine and neuropathic painkillers who say, I have absolutely no pain. They still have pain, but they have a load of side effects as well. Trying to ease back on all of those kind of medications is actually... But what I would be trying to do rather than adding in anything. If there's clearly an affected disorder and you think antidepressants would be helpful, then that's something to consider. But I generally very rarely prescribe those as well. So, yeah, medication free, don't need a BNF in the clinic room.
0: Wow, really interesting. And Beth, I think that's more or less coming to the end of our conversation. Are there any last parting thoughts which you uh, want to leave our listeners with if if there's one sort of lesson you want uh, the audience to take home from your talk today? Is there anything, uh, if you said, right, this is the one thing I want you to take away from today?
1: Um, That anybody can get functional symptoms, that it's a normal, natural process process. humans have experienced functional symptoms for as, as long as they've been writing things down we can see descriptions of what we recognize as functional symptoms it's a normal part of being a human and I think once you sort of appreciate that, that and, and 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 maintain that empathy for the for the situation that somebody's in then I think you're that's a good starting point
0: yeah fantastic well Dr Beth Malam For a a consultant uh, in neurology and sub-specialising in functional neurological disorder. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And uh, thank you so much for joining me.
1: No, it's great. I always love talking about FND.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And listeners, that is the end of another show. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with us if you've got any feedback on the show. We always love to hear from you. It's it's on our Twitter, it's at Prepaces Podcast or via the website which is prepacespodcast.com. If you really want to go above and beyond and directly support the show, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast.